That's interesting because I didn't know the book existed and I probably never would have. The movie was so compelling that I thought, oh, what, what's the real story? Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, part two of what to see in the theaters or not, or part two of talk about movies. You know, Anthony Esselin, who is an author I greatly respect, Mm -hmm. he is perhaps more negative about modern movies than anyone. (laughs) And I believe at one time he posted on his uh, Facebook, Mm -hmm. any movie made before 1960 is Mm -hmm. better than any movie made after. Oh, (laughs) Well, so he's he's a huge fan of the old ones, Humphrey Bogart, I guess, in those mm. those days. I think, you know, for me, the movies go back to my childhood. Mm-hmm. Those are the oldest ones I mm-hmm. can actually know about. And I know this is one of your favorites. Mm-hmm. And that's The Sound of Music, Love of course. That movie. Mm-hmm. I uh, was very interested at one point to read the book. Mm. It's the the, the Trap Family Singers, mm-hmm. I believe. It's written by one of the the girls. Mm-hmm. Of course, there were some significant differences in the way things actually came down. Movies have to be engineered for mm-hmm. you know maybe a little more suspense, or they have to shrink time mm-hmm. sometimes. So there's a distortion there. The overall spirit of the movie seemed to capture the overall spirit of the book. And I think that's what you have to look at when right. you're comparing books and movies. So, you know, that would be probably a movie along with The Wizard of Oz mm. that we watched every year. Before, there was even VHS tapes. <laughs> you're old enough to remember <laughs> this. Of course I am. We couldn't just watch a movie Unless it was in a theater mm-hmm. or unless it was on television. With lots of commercials and, and shortened significantly. Yes. <laughs> and so there were certain movies that mm-hmm. I believe they played every year right. because people would look forward to this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember every year we would watch The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. and Sound of Music. And so those are very deeply ingrained from my, my childhood movie-watching memory. And the Charlie Brown movies that we the Charlie <laughs> Brown and uh, and then there were uh, probably a couple Disney films mm-hmm. that were on the Disney Channel and you could see those multiple times. <laughs> I remember seeing Fantasia yes in the theater yes and knowing a lot of the music. My my mother brilliantly got the records and played the music, mm-hmm. and then when I saw the movie. You know, it was much more engaging. Right. And then, of course, I think Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, you know, some of those. Uh, I would probably not watch them now, nor would I want to even subject my grandchildren to too many 
Disney films. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, you talk about the older movies. I think of Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, yeah. And yep. the pace of yes. that movie <laughs> is unbelievably slow. I just can't even stand it. You know, it's, it's interesting because you can make a comparison between old books mm-hmm. and old movies mm-hmm. versus new books and new movies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in these old movies, they'd give you two minutes of scenery, yes. right? <laughs> of just the train going slowly and the beautiful mountains in the back and the music and and people must have liked that, I guess, maybe because they didn't, you know, they were stuck in a city. They never got to see the mountains or mm, whatever. Right. You'd never get away with that nope. in a movie today. No. Nope. Two minutes of just scenery. You'd be like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what is this? Yes. Everything in a modern movie has to be tightly connected. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's the effort, I guess, to engage the, the more modern mind. Books are kind of the same way. If you go back and read old books, mm-hmm. we mentioned Dickens in mm-hmm. the last uh, episode. You know, Dickens and Melville and Bronte and authors of that that time period, they would spend paragraphs, pages, just describing a scene. Right. They would take three chapters of the beginning of the book before you got even a hint of what was a pot- a possible problem or mm-hmm. situation. Right. Well, modern readers just don't have the tolerance for that. And they're raised up on books that are written, you know, they call it the young adult market, but mm. they're written to like grab kids mm-hmm. on the first page. Yep. So they'll read it and keep them reading to the last page and then start the next problem at the end of that book, so they'll buy the next book in the right. series. Yep. And so uh, this uh, commercial drive uh, to meet the, I don't know, shorter attention spans mm. of modern people. I have once heard that that shorter attention span, <laughs> true or not, can be attributed to Sesame Street because the segments on Sesame Street are 20 seconds. And they just keep flipping to segment to segment. So there we go. Yeah, I think Sesame there's – Sesame Street generation. You know, there's a lot. I think you might be able to trace it back to that and then mm-hmm. probably some other things. Certainly the whole idea of commercials mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Of, of what would you call it, disintegrated information. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm wondering if someone wrote A Tale of Two Cities mm. today, right. would anyone publish it and would anyone buy it? Maybe, maybe not, but it's certainly – you know, has the power it has today because Dickens wrote it, you know, a hundred and few dozen years ago or whenever, and it's a classic. So we all trust that. Yes. But if you had to pick up Tale of Two Cities and slog through the first four chapters today, I don't know if anyone would do that. Without believing that this was a classic exactly. and worth reading. Yep, yeah. Exactly. Just kind of fresh. Uh, so, you know, which is one reason why we need we need to raise children mm-hmm. with classics, with the good and and great books mm-hmm. so that they have the capacity to read because, of course, the story is – it's profoundly moving. Yes. A Tale of Two Cities. Yes. Um, and some, uh, some of the really good and great books uh, have been made into movies. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's always a debate, you know, should you – 
make your kid read the book before they see the movie? I don't think there's a categorical answer to that. I think it definitely depends on the book and the movie. Yeah. I can give you an example. And listeners, if you have not yet read The Scarlet Pimpernel and have not yet (laughs) watched the movie, I highly recommend that you treat yourself to reading the book first because there's a twist in there that it's given away too early in the movie. Hmm. So it's really important, that kind of thing. I was really angry when I watched the movie after having read the book to all the people who hadn't read the book first because they missed out on that surprise. Well, and movies, by their nature, are are grossly shrunken versions of the book they came from. In most cases. Unless you want to make a... 16-hour-long episode of Pride and Prejudice. Right, true. <laughs> um, you you have to cut out so much. So right. the problem of the movie maker is, you know, what do you cut? Right. And that always kind of hurts people who love the book. Mm-hmm. True. Now, I'll, I'll go the other way on this, though. I do think there are some movies mm-hmm. that are an excellent introduction to the book. Yes. And, and specifically... I would say Shakespeare. Mm, Yes. So it's a little different because I don't think Shakespeare ever imagined that someday people would just sit around reading the plays. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't have made sense, I don't think, to to him and the people that worked with him to write those things. But we we tend to do that, whereas that's really hard. It's hard to get the visual imagery because you've got zero descriptions – Right. And it's all dialogue. Right. And if you're not familiar with the history of that time and place, y- you can't get images to go and build the narrative in your mind. If you see the movie first, well, uh, generally it's not a shortened version. Right. Because it's the complete play. They do often. it line for line. Yep. And you have the costuming and you have mm-hmm. the the scenery and you have the nuance of the vocalizations that are all – adding to the experience, and you also can can get the storyline better. Mm-hmm. And then when you go and, you know, read, if you are, you know, going to do that someday, go mm-hmm. read Hamlet, <laughs> right. it's a whole much better experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So that would be one example. I can think of a few examples where I didn't know the book existed, mm-hmm. and I saw the movie, and so I was inspired to read the book because of having seen the movie. Yes. They're not always the same name, too. The one that comes to mind is one of my top five pictures. I, I, I mentioned, I think at one point, there's probably only five movies that I would watch again and again and mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. One of them is The Scarlet and the Black. Mm. And it's the story of Father Hugh O'Flaherty, who was a monsignor, a priest, in the Vatican, during World War II. Oh, wow. And so the Vatican was neutral territory. Mm-hmm. So he was protected, but what he was doing was running a, a kind of an underground railroad mm. to help Jews and captured prisoners and uh, people who the Nazis were trying to get help them escape right. by means of his uh, network of underground network of people. And he used to dress up in various costumes Hmm. when he would venture out of the Vatican. So the Nazis sent kind of a a real cutthroat uh, SS captain to shut this thing down. 
And so the story is really this character study in a way of this monsignor trying to help people to freedom and not get caught in the process and then this Nazi officer trying to stop him. So in the movie, Father O'Flaherty is played by Gregory Peck. Oh. And the Nazi officer is played by Christopher Plummer. Oh, we talked about him the last time. Yeah, so you have these two master actors. Yes. And the subtleties of interaction there. Mm -hmm. And this movie had to have been made not too long after The Sound of Music because mm. Christopher Plummer looks quite young, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> and so it's it's this, you know, intrigue and trying to catch uh, – I, I would be careful for any child under maybe 12 mm -hmm. because there's a, a little bit of a brutal scene where the Nazi officer has someone executed mm. by firing squad. But other than that, you know. So at the end of the movie, this Nazi officer comes and, and begs the – Monsignor, to help his family get out of Italy mm. because the Allies are coming, the war is ending, Italy's going to be occupied, and he's not going to be able to get back to Germany. Mm -hmm. But he wants his family. Mm -hmm. And and Father of Lady says, why should I help you? Mm -hmm. You've done nothing but try to kill me and interfere with me and oppose right. everything I stand for. Why should I help you? Mm -hmm. And so they separate. And then later, at the very end, he discovers that indeed his family is safe. Now, that's the end of the movie. But I was so interested in this story when I discovered that it is a true story. Oh, interesting. Wow. I went and read the book, which I believe may be entitled The Pimpernel of the Vatican. Oh, so like the Scarlet Pimpernel, but not... He's sneaking in, trying right? to help people get yeah. away from... And so here's the beautiful epilogue that's in the real story. Hmm. This Nazi officer is captured and sentenced to life in prison. He was a horrible guy. Yeah. War crimes. Yeah. One man visits him hmm. every month, month hmm. after month, year after year, and that is, of course, Father of Flaherty. Hmm. Wow. And guess what? Hmm. He becomes a Christian hmm. in prison. This Nazi officer is converted. Wow. Yep. So... You know, that's interesting because I didn't know the book existed and I probably right. never would have. Right. The movie was so compelling yeah. that I thought, oh, what, what's the real story? Right. And, of course, there are many other differences and sure. compressed time and all that. So I can think of a few movies that would inspire maybe a person to find books they wouldn't necessarily have found. So have you ever read a book, enjoyed it very much, and found that the movie rendition of the book was intolerable. Hmm. I know you have because you've mentioned <laughs> it before. Shall I say which book it is? Well, which I movie yes, it is. I think yes. You know, it's The Hobbit. Yes. Right. It was funny because I tell that story in my talk, Nurturing Company Communicators, yes. about how I read. The Fellowship of the Ring mm -hmm. out loud to the whole family. And then we went to see the movie and it came out in the theaters. That was yes. such a big deal Yeah, that they were making, you know, The Fellowship of the Ring, Lord the of the Rings. And The into... Fellowship of the Ring was a wonderful story, pretty closely followed the book as much as it could. That was the idea. We're going to read this yep. before we see it. And then, of course, uh, over successive years, mm -hmm. uh, we got The Two Towers and mm -hmm. then Return of the King. And then we got it on DVD, extended version. And then you could have a, you know, an eight-hour marathon yes. of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> 
And then I think the fateful decision, let's go make The Hobbit. Right. Now, The Hobbit is probably what? 200 pages? Yeah. Where The Lord of the Rings is probably six times that? It, well, yeah. I don't, yeah, it, the total. Yeah. Right, total. But let's not just make one movie of The Hobbit. Let's mm-hmm. make three Hobbit movies. Yeah. Since you've got to go to all the trouble of building Hobbiton again. Which you visited in when you were in New Zealand. I did, <laughs> and getting the New Zealand army to, you know, build your road again and letting them be the orcs in the... In the movie, and <laughs> the, you know, New Ze- the New Zealand army were the orcs. Yes, the yes. Oh, this is one trivia. of the trivia's <laughs> points of trivia that I learned when I visited Hobbiton. <laughs> you know, because they built Hobbiton for the first movie, mm-hmm. and then they were done, so they restored it. It was the sheep sheep farm, sheep mm-hmm. and cattle farm. Mm-hmm. They restored it to its natural condition, more or less, and then. They said, oh, we're going to make movies again. we got to do, rebuild this. So mm-hmm. the owner of the farm said, okay, this time let's build it nice and leave it here because people come from all over the world just to look at my farm because the movie was filmed here. Nice. And so they did. So uh, I guess Peter Jackson, the owner of the farm, kind of went into business together. Mm-hmm. And so now it's a, a pretty significant tourist attraction mm-hmm. in New Zealand. But so they made that movie and – I was very disappointed with the first one. And the second one, I was so nauseated that I simply flat out refused to even consider seeing the third one. So to this day, you have not seen the third. That is correct. Yeah, there's so much deviation from the original story, and, and so in much a embellishments. Way I, I wish I could unsee, you know. <laughs> but, you know, the, those were books I grew up with. and it's, So, Andrew, what they did with The Hobbit is they did – an expanded Unit 3 model is what they Yeah, do. with, uh, I don't know, more like a expanded Unit 5 with way too many pictures. <laughs> way then. too many pictures. So, yeah, we'll probably get some feedback from our listeners who loved The Hobbit. but Well, that's fine. You, you can love it. I don't criticize anyone. I do, I do wonder, though. Mm-hmm. See, if you read the book first— it imprints images in your memory, the images that are built by the author and translated by you in your imagination. Mm -hmm. And those are strong. Book is a a slow thing to do, Mm -hmm. right? To read a whole book takes a long time. And so you're, you're contemplating these images over a much longer period of time. Mm. A movie has much less impact than a book mm. if you just see it once mm-hmm. because you just go see it two hours, you're done, and you see enough movies that you really don't have a whole lot of opportunity to revisit those images. Now, there are some movies that people watch many, many, many times. <laughs> I think I'm Princess Bride yes, may fall into the category of, especially in the homeschool world, in the maybe 2000s. Mm. I think people watch that movie so many times they could meet at a debate convention and just act out whole scenes having memorized the dialogue of it just for fun in the hallways, you know. So that that had, a, you know, an impact because of repetition. But mm-hmm. your normal movie, you see it, you forget a lot of it. Mm-hmm. A book, though, you contemplate that over a longer period of time. Now, if you read a book, it gives you 
images, mm -hmm. and those stay with you mm -hmm. for, for a length of time, maybe not forever. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you go see the movie? Well, do the images in the movie replace or overwrite the imagination? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think they do. Like when I think of the book that I was talking about at the very beginning, uh -huh. The Scarlet Pimpernel, mm -hmm. having watched the movie multiple times, a Jane Seymour was the actress, leading actress in that movie, versus reading the book multiple times, probably uh -huh. more than I've seen the movie. What I see in my mind is more than what I see in the movie. Okay. Well, that's nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a good one. I'm, I'm imagining, though, that a lot of kids who might have read the book mm. and then see a movie, it might overwrite that. Oh, uh-huh. You read the book when you were younger. Yes. You saw the movie when you were older. Yes. So that might have something to do with the book uh. images being more... More dominant. <laughs> right. Because, be. you know, your absorbent mind of youth. Yes. I had a similar experience with Jane Eyre. I read the book, but not as a young person, as an old person. Mm. And then the movie was just really disappointing. Oh. Also, Anna Karenina. <laughs> uh, that was the modern one. It was just really, really bad. <laughs> but it, so what I noticed after seeing the movie, was this struggle in my mind mm. to try to reject the new images so I could hang on to the old ones. Right, right. So it's kind of a... Oh, one thing about The Lord of the Rings I would comment on, I was reading a review mm -hmm. uh, in kind of a uh, like a theological magazine. Mm -hmm. um, I think the author of this uh, review made a very astute observation. I've contemplated this many times since. He said this. He said, imagined evil is more attractive than real evil. Hmm. But real good is more attractive than imagined good. Hmm. So when we have a movie, we're, we're making the evil more attractive and the good less attractive. Hmm. Because we can't do it the other way, right? So we we see the evil. I think, you know, horror movies or something in this genre, it's, there's something a little bit seductive or voyeuristic about this. If we were to see that evil in reality, we'd, we'd run, we'd, we'd freak out, right? Hopefully we'd mentally block it out because it would be so terrible. It would be so terrible. But in a movie, there's... You can actually kind of like watching the orcs. Well, it's softened because you know it's just pretend. Yeah. Whereas on the other side, I remember, I remember reading about Rivendell mm -hmm. and the descriptions of Rivendell. Yes. And the movie couldn't come close. Mm -hmm. There, there was no way to portray mm -hmm. the artistically yeah. the the reality mm -hmm. of my experience of Rivendell from from Tolkien's right. writing. Right. And so I, I've thought about that a lot. You know, real good mm -hmm. is more attractive than imagined. And and so in a way, Tolkien's Rivendell is more real than Jackson's Rivendell. Interesting. See what I mean? Yep. yep. Imagined evil is more attractive than real evil. Also, Tolkien doesn't go into huge descriptions of the ugliness. No. 
Whereas the movie gets you pretty down and dirty with orcs and trolls. Yes, <laughs> in Mordor. <laughs> so you, we had when we were talking earlier, you had mentioned that there were a few plays that you had discovered that you didn't know existed. So I think plays and movies, probably in the same field of visual arts as opposed to literary art, What's your experience in, say, Les Mis? I want to shift that because we only have a few minutes left. Right, right. Rather than plays, Mm -hmm. musicals. Okay, great, yes. Because musicals have an ability to convey something Mm -hmm. beyond simply dialogue of words. True. They have an emotional impact. Mm -hmm. You loved The Greatest Showman. I did. And, of course... Without the music, that would not have been a very impressive movie. No, it wouldn't have. What is it about the music? It it opens up our capacity for shared mm. feeling. Mm-hmm. So if a character is experiencing angst mm-hmm. and they sing about that angst, you feel it more. Right. If they're experiencing love and they sing about that love, mm. you're drawn into that mm-hmm. a lot more than if they're just talking. So the first time I noticed this was with a musical, Little Women. Okay. When uh, we were in Rio, California, back in the O's, (laughs) (laughs) um, we had a homeschool theater ensemble. Mm -hmm. And the first play, the first musical we did was Cinderella, Mm -hmm. Rodgers and Hammerstein. You know, well done, easy to get, pretty easy to do, relatively small cast. And that was... It was a success, and every all the kids wanted to do it again, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So I looked for a musical that I thought would have good literary value, and uh, I found out there's musicals from all sorts of books you wouldn't have imagined, you know, from Wuthering Heights to The Scarlet Pimpernel mm. to, of course, we all knew about Les Mis at that yep. point. My boys were actors in Les Mis when our high school really? production team oh, did. Oh, yep. what a great thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, we couldn't do that. That was a little beyond our little oh, yeah. our yeah. little group. But I did find this this musical of Little Women. Mm-hmm. Of course, I knew the books, having read them to the girls. Mm-hmm. And what what I noticed was that while the musical was just a very short, excerpted, you know, the ultimate summary where you take some of it and leave most of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the songs allowed for a much richer experience mm. because they conveyed that emotion a lot more mm-hmm. than if it had just been a play. And I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. I find that effective music. In fact, I will sometimes, uh, when I'm driving, listen to Broadway musicals of books that I know. Mm. So I love Jane Eyre. I've read mm-hmm. it a few times, taught it to kids. And there's a musical, a Broadway musical of nice. Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. So while I despised the movie version, I was I, I'm completely enamored with the musical because it takes you through the whole story, not with all the description, narrative, and dialogue, but with all the emotional and and character development changes yep. that occur. Yep. And uh, so that's fascinating to me. Um, I never, as a kid, I kind of did not like musicals because nope. my mom would drag me off to <laughs> yes. West Side Story or whatever. No, please. <laughs> right. But as an as an adult, I've really enjoyed them a great deal. Great. Well, Andrew, thank you for 
allowing me and allowing our listeners to get a peek into your soul, as it were, (laughs) and get some feedback on perhaps some recommendations for a few movies, but more importantly, just understanding better how we can serve our children and help them to be well-educated. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudoua and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.